Yeah, you can you can tell you know once you plug in your 11.5 versus your 20, the hit percentages in theory, mind you, this is a calculator, but a well-respected one, are going to drop. Um, so I do kind of see a little bit of suspicion when I say somebody says, "Oh, I take my 11.5 out to 600 yards all the time." Hey there, and welcome to the Everyday Marksman the podcast where it is all about tactical skills for living a more adventurous life. Our website is everydaymarksman.co and there you're going to find all of our show notes, our articles, our social links, and our awesome community of marksmen just like you. I'm your host, Matt Robertson, and I'm a former military officer turned tech sector corporate grunt, outdoors enthusiast, competitive shooter, and as always, your loyal friend. Today's episode is number 31, and it is kind of a different one for me because this is more of a roundtable episode, as much as a roundtable can be between me and one other blogger who I'm pretty good friends with, and the topic of the day is the M16A5. What is the M16A5, you ask? Well, that is a great question, and one I've written a pretty lengthy article about in the past. So the short version before you get to the actual discussion here is that the M16A5 is not a real thing. It was an idea that the Marine Corps proposed many years ago. I feel old by thinking about it now. And ultimately, they chose not to use it in favor of going with the HK416 for general issue. But the M16A5 was a 20-inch government barrel with a free-floated rail and a collapsible Stock. It was designed to be a lot more useful for going in and out of vehicles, gave that adjustability that you didn't get from a fixed A2. For any of the Canadian listeners out there, you know this is not too far off from what the Canadians call the C7A2. And in all, it is actually one of my absolute favorite rifle configurations to shoot. It is smooth and it is just awesome. I love taking it to the range. I love introducing others on shooting with it. So today's conversation is really about our different experiences. Brian, he runs the new rifleman and he also has a similar rifle to mine. So we talk about how we use in competition, how we use it in training and our experiences running it. And there's some other fun pieces of conversation as well. So without holding you up any further, let's jump to it over Skype. All right, Brian, welcome to the Everyday Marksman. Hey, glad to be here, man. So um, we have an interesting topic today. This is a this is a new format for me where we're going to pick a topic and just kind of talk about it. So the topic of the day is the M16A5, which is, I think, really interesting. And you have a perspective on it. Yes. I have a perspective on it. So before we get to that, though, I want to have everybody who doesn't know you, who are you? What's your website? My website is going to be thenewrifleman.com, which I've run since around 2014. Uh, I'm known as Lothian on there. Go by Brian here on the podcast. And um, yeah, I just had a fascination with marksmanship and, and uh, being a rifleman since I really got an AR-15 but never had the opportunity. So that's where I come from. I, I love the rifle, the 20-inch gun, and I love marksmanship. Um, and that's really the basis of my blog. That's the foundation. So what is your go-to rifle right now? 
I have a 16-inch carbine, uh, which is more practical than a 20-inch gun, of course. Um, I like the fact that I don't have to register no NFA stuff at the time I built it. Pistols were just kind of taken off, so I didn't jump on that bandwagon soon enough. However, uh, it's my go-to rifle. It's reliable, and I would grab it first just because of the practicality of it. But that doesn't mean I don't love my 20-inch guns because I love them a lot. I have, have four of them versus one carbine. So it's funny because I'm in the exact same boat in that if you ask me what my go-to is, I'm, I'm going to pick one of my 16-inch rifles, but I love my 20-inch and my 18 for that matter. Um, so that's kind of why I think this would be a fun episode is because what is it about these long, longer rifles that are such a thing that infects your soul that you like them so much, even though you know they're just not as practical? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I got to say that the first time I took a 20-inch build out on the range uh, with the compensator, it really opened my eyes as to what, what was going on with these 20-inch guns. You hear a lot of times that, oh, yeah, they're smooth shooters. They're smooth. But but you can't really quantify that as a bystander or a reader on a forum. So when I finally put a comp in, and, yes, they are smooth as a basic box stock with an A2 comp. They're pretty smooth shooters. But when I finally put a comp on my 20-inch uh, uh, A2, for example, it uh, I thought I had a malfunction with the first round I fired out of it. Uh, it, it was so subdued and so flat that instantly it became my favorite configuration for just as a shootability perspective. You can hit a target repeatedly and stay on target with uh, with a good pace of fire. These rifles are marksmanship rifles in a practical sense. You know, am I ever going to use that in self-defense? No. But for sport, for, for uh, pleasure shooting, uh, for going out to the range, there's nothing better than a, than a 20 with its muted characteristics or shooting characteristics and, uh, you know, just excellent, excellent, uh, behind the trigger on these guns. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So, um, the topic of the day is the M 16, a five, which for the listener here is not a real thing. Yes. Um, we talk about the M 16, a five, I have an article on it. You have an article on it, but the, the truth is that's, that's never actually been an official designation for anything, but it's an idea of something. So I'm going to ask you first, then what is your interpretation of that? Well, it's going to stay as a 20-inch gun. You know, I was a little disappointed when the Marines went to the HK series um, just because I thought, you know, I, I'm not a Marine. I've never been in the military, but it kind of was some of that romance of the rifleman. You know, they're switching to a carbine. Some of that was lost, and some of the history of the M16A2A4 uh, series was lost. So that was a little disappointing. But what it means to me is is um, it's a build that reflects some of the history and the lineage of the original stoner design, the 20 inch rifle from a one to a two, uh, to a four. And it's the interpretive, you know, interpretive of what the a five is, is our modern 20 inch guns. Uh, in my case with a collapsible telestock, which is an a five, uh, from Voltor or Ultor. Um, you've got your quad rail. It looks very similar. looks, looks, um, somewhat similar to the M 16, a four modular weapon system, uh, with a 20 inch barrel. And that muted shooting characteristics, that really uh, mellow uh, characteristics behind the trigger, all that's here and present and accounted for with a 20-inch gun and a collapsible stock. So I think it's in as many ways to interpret these things, like your your build, my build, both uh, interpretations of the same basic design, the M16A5, which never was. Um, but it means to me, you know, I've got a marksman, I've got a modern rifleman's rifle. It's got all the performance. It can eke out of a of a five five six with that desirable shooting characteristics. It's just the perfect thing to lay down fire from prone uh, from zero to six hundred yards. 
and make hits feel easy. It's a rifleman's weapon, and uh, you can still compete with it in high power. So it's it's got its uses as a as a practical rifle for competition. And should things go haywire in the United States, you have a good gun for for longer distance fields. Like I'm I'm in some farmland. Um, you know, it'd be a good rifle to grab as you're watching or looking for hogs out at 300, 400 yards. The 20 inch is practical in those in those uh, regards. Uh, Self defense in the home, not so much. But hey. That's life. Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, so yeah, we, we know the official uh, like sales pitch of the A5 came out. Ooh, when was that? Like, I don't have my article open right now, but it was a shot show. I feel like when we first saw oh, it. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah. I forgot what year it was. I feel like it was a while ago at this point. <laughs> yeah, it was one of AR15.com submachine gun. Lee had his thread open. You know, I had his thread open. I had them always open uh, every shot show. Uh, looking at their equipment. And then when he showed pictures of the uh, Ultor booth and the M16A5 uh, that they interpreted with its um, mon- semi-monolithic upper receiver and A5 stock, you know, I uh, I thought, man, I should put a pre-order for this. But I ultimately didn't. Um, I, I was going to wait and see what would happen. And to my dismay, the M16A4 PIP program never turned into the M16A5. It just went away quietly mm-hmm. um, with... Uh, with the advent of the HK416 series coming into the Marine Corps service. And that was the final nail in the coffin. Yeah. And so my understanding, like as, I, as I'm looking at these things, so people who don't know, because it wasn't by accident, they said, hey, we're going to put a 20 inch, a 20 inch rifle with a collapsible stock. That had been happening for a while, um, all the way back to Gulf War One in the early 90s, where people just recognize, like if I'm going around in vehicles or in buildings that a full size A2 or A4 was just, a little too long. So there was, there was official army guidance allowed you to put a M4 lower with a different buffer in it, the H6, that you could put a, a different lower on it and made it collapsible and a little bit easier to navigate. And this is really kind of formalizing that program, which the Canadians had already done with the uh, C7A2. So, you know, to me, it was just kind of a everybody already has this idea. Why not just give it a name kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. The, um, there was even reports way back when of the M16A2 rifle with, uh, let me, let me quote a uh, study here or an analysis of the M16A2 rifle characteristics and recommended improvements. Uh, the first thing it opens with is the M16A2 stock is too long for army use. And I think this, uh, evaluation was done in the late nineties. And at that point, armor would have been coming into place. So our soldiers, uh, we, we all seen uh, pictures of the war on terror where some of the Marines are touching the tippiest toe of the A2 stock onto their shoulder and on their armor. And I own some soft armor that I can put on and replicate that. And it's, it's insanely too long. I mm. mean, it's, it's non-functional. I mean, it has to go. So adding the telestock to it is a logical conclusion. It's a logical evolution of the design. And I can then put on my soft armor, uh, you know, plates, whatever, and I could adjust that stock until I'm comfortable behind that 20-inch gun. So Band-Aid, yes, it's still longer than a, than a carbine, than M4, but, you know, it, it really takes that argument away once you stick a telestock on the 20-inch gun because it still shoots pleasantly. And now you can uh, adjust it to shooter profile and uh, shooter's uh, gear. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, I'm gonna start with mine. So, so I have my interpretation of it. I'm gonna go muzzle to stock and just kind of walk through what mine looks like. So the muzzle cool. of mine, I am running a um, AFAB from ooh. Precision. Thank precision you. Armament. Yeah, so I'm gonna start that over again. <laughs> so the muzzle of mine is a Precision Armament AFAB. 
Love that thing. Um, bought it just to kind of test it out. And I liked it so much it just stayed. Not saying that's a requirement for anything, but I do like it. Uh, it is a total BCM 20 inch government upper other than that. So I bought that totally complete government profile barrel fixed uh, front sight post and then the BCM upper uh, in the guts. Lower is, uh, let's see, on mine, I think is actually Grey Gross Precision with a lower parts kit that I don't even remember where I got it from, probably Psionics. It has a LaRue MBT 2S in it Ooh. and Viltor A5 buffer and a Sprinco Green spring. And then the stock itself is a Magpul UBR 2.0. So that's mine. Uh, front to end and the optic I'm running is the Trigicon TA110 3.5 LED ACOG. Uh, I wish uh, I wish I had some time behind one of those. Those uh, those look pretty nice. Just haven't encountered one in the wild yet. Yeah, they're rare. They're very rare. All right. Yeah, that's a good build. I mean, uh, what's your weight? What what kind of weight are you talking about with that uh, rifle? Oh, see, now I have to go. Google. I was going to look up. Someone's asked that before, and I think I actually, uh, hold on. All right. So all up, that weight on that one is about nine and a half to 10 pounds. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it's very similar to mine. I mean, I think I'm pushing 9.2 pounds or something along those lines without the ACOG. So mine's a little bit of a heavier because of the profile barrel, but we'll get into that once we're done discussing yours. Yeah. Um, and then this, I don't, I don't keep a sling on this one all the time. So the sling will depend on what I'm doing with it. If I'm going to a match with it, um, I may run something more precision oriented, or if it's more of a tactical training class, which I've used it before, it ends up being something a little more adjustable, like a VTAC or not VTAC or a, something like a Vickers VCAS. So I love that rifle. I have used it in competition. I've used it in small unit tactics training, uh, running up and down the hills of West Virginia in the woods, shooting at silhouettes. Um, it is probably my favorite rifle in the safe by far. Uh, it's definitely the most fun to shoot. Yeah, and it just goes back to that pleasurable shooting experience. I mean, it just stays on target. If yours with that comp, it must stay on target better than my my uh, my build. And you know what can you say? Once you're prone with that rifle, it's hard to miss, especially with good glass. It uh it it feels like a laser <laughs> because the thing just practically doesn't move. Uh, it just stays. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If anybody's listening and you don't have time behind a twenty, I mean, you need one in rotation. You need you need to try one with a comp. Um, they're they're it's eye opening, really, especially coming off overgassed carbines. You know, coming off a PSA build and getting a quality twenty inch with a comp. Wow, night and day. Mm -hmm. All right, so tell me about yours. All right, so what I've got is a a hodgepodge. Um, I've got a Colt H bar barrel, which I found, uh, on sale for 160. So that kind of turned into the basis of my, my build. I found that barrel pretty cheap, uh, a little on the heavier side, but I knew this rifle was going to be kind of more of a marksmanship oriented rifle. So I didn't bother. We're looking for a government profile. Uh, so I've got that on a saber defense upper receiver now defunct. It was on clearance at Brownells, but it's a good uh, product. And I topped it off with a BCM QRF for the rail. Um, I wanted it to kind of have some some of the same vein of look as the M16A4 modular weapon system. I didn't necessarily wanted a I didn't necessarily want a CAC uh, system. I wanted the free float. I wanted the advantages that imparted on the rifle. And a V7 titanium barrel nut actually brings that rail within one tenth of an ounce uh, of weight as the 
original plastic stock handguards, Delta ring, and, and so forth and so on. So it didn't add much weight to the rifle to have a, a modern uh, quad rail. Um, I've got an A5 stock, an MBT just like yours. I run a Vickers sling as well. Uh, excuse me, a Blue Force gear. Sorry, not a Vickers. Um, and I topped it off with a TA01 ACOG, um, which is, you know, of course, uh, calibrated for 55 grain ammunition. But out of this 20, I can modify that fairly well with with uh, ballistic software and find uh, a good compatible load. Uh, I mostly do shoot 55 grain 193 clones and reloads, so it's a good match for this gun. Uh, at the muzzle tip, I'm running an A2 comp, and I've been hunting for a new device. Uh, I might go with an AFAB based on your recommendation, because uh, my current favorite muzzle device, the M4SD from uh, from Griffin Armament, is discontinued. And much to my dismay, it was A2 length, and I, I don't want to go too much longer than that, but what can you do? I want to replicate my A2's shooting uh, characteristics a little more on my, my A4. So you reminded me of two things I forgot to say. Um, one is the rail that I'm running is a Daniel Defense Omega 12, which I believe they don't make anymore. Um, and I bought that one intentionally because this this used to be my marksmanship practice rifle for iron sights uh, with plastic handguards. And then I wanted the rail for practical reasons to free float it, but I didn't want to go through the trouble of removing the Delta ring assembly and everything in case I wanted to put plastic back on it. So I yeah. got the Daniel Defense clip right over and I've ever taken it off. <laughs> so there's that. And I didn't mention that not a lot of people know this, but my ACOG is actually calibrated for 308. Oh, I see. You've got a B version. Yeah. So mine is the, so it's a horseshoe dot reticle, uh, green led, but calibrated for yeah, the, the 240. So, uh, and the reason I do that is because the ballistics of a 77 grain is closer to 147 grain 762. Uh, than the 55. Yes, I got you. So that's, that's a good fit for your rifle. Um, also, your green tip should mirror that 308 pretty close to mm -hmm. a little bit off calibration with my TA01 for those. But uh, yeah, that's, I was actually looking for a TA01B and uh, my local local gun shop was not able to get one in for me. So I settled for my TA01. I think you made a pretty good choice. It's it's uh, It must be nice shooting those 77 grain pills without the uh, adverse effects of as much wind as I would experience. Yeah, it's definitely nice. Now, who knows? Maybe in the future, I may, not may, I will be putting together a semi-auto 308, and then maybe the ACOG migrates to that, and then I pick something different for the for this gun. But who knows? That's in the future. For now, this is what's been working great for me. Yeah, I gotcha. It sound, I mean, it sounds like a nice rifle. I've seen many pictures of it. It looks uh, it looks like in the vein of what the M16A5 could have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at the end of the day, I mean, we have pretty similar builds here. That the, the M16A5 is a 20-inch modernized kind of a four style free float barrel with a collapsible stock. That's kind of the overall archetype we're talking about. Yeah. And you've seen on Reddit, you've seen other people with that same interpretation, something similar. Right. All right. So um, the next question then is um, how have you used yours? Well, I have been out of competition for a while, so it's mostly just uh, marksmanship practice at uh, at some property for now. I do want to kind. Of, I'm on the verge of leaving the muzzle bear. I want to put the comp on it, but then I think, oh man, I can I can drive an hour and a half and get to a high power competition. I just haven't uh, done that with this rifle yet, so I may wait until after I get some time behind the trigger for high power. Um, and luckily we've just cleared out some family property out to two three hundred yards, so I can get some. Um, 200 yard freehand and 300 yard uh, 
rapid fire prone and sitting practice in so I can head back out to the high power range. So for now, it's just basically a, a self-practice marksmanship rifle. It hasn't been with me to any competitions. It's, it's been a little hard to get uh, out there when I've started having all these kids. So that kind of my, that part of my life is back in Pennsylvania competitions every, every month, every, every time there was one man, that was awesome. But kids kind of hold me back being, being a father, being a family man. So this will be uh, eventually taken to some of those venues. It's just not happened as of yet. Okay. So from a marksmanship standpoint, um, how do you feel using that one versus some of the other ones you've got? Oh gosh. I, um, comparing it to my more practical gun, my carbine, I mean, they're both pretty smooth shooters. They both actually stop, uh, rock an A2 flash header right now. Um, so I find free, free hand at a hundred yards. I can, I can blast oranges. Uh, we have an orange tree, which I put out as reactive targets freehand in the ACOG. It makes it incredibly easy to blast, uh, oranges, um, to hit my eight inch steel, the, the four inch steel or the lower end is a little, I think it might be three inches, a little more difficult, but once you get down to a sitting position or, or a prone position, it's just hard to miss even the small steel at a hundred. So the rifle, again, it shoots so, so mellow, so, so muted and the weight of my H bar, uh, on freehand really keeps you on target. So some people will not, you know, H bar is a dirty word to some people. And especially a chrome-lined H-bar, people will think, well, what are you going to do with that? I mean, it's not a uh, precision H-bar for high-power competition. It's not um, a lightweight build for more tactical, you know, uh, courses and so forth. Um, but I'm, I'm fine with it. It actually shoots around uh, one and a half MOA uh, and a little tighter with some of the hand loads. So while, it not, while it's not the best choice, if I take it to high-power, am I going to Am I going to lose because, you know, am I going to go home crying because and blame my barrel for being inaccurate? Absolutely not. It's got plenty of accuracy to do any reasonable thing I could possibly think of to do with a 20-inch gun from zero to 600 yards. Uh, so H-bar to me isn't a dirty word, and chrome-lined H-bar isn't a dirty word, but people send, tend to avoid the build like this, uh, like the plague, it seems. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I noticed from a marksmanship standpoint is – the longer barrel helps it settle in the hand a lot more, have a much more forward balance to it, uh, which is actually why I put a UBR in the back to help increase the total weight, but it helped balance it a little more rearward than it was at first when I had a, an EMOD stock on the rear. Um, but I find like that forward balance makes it very pleasant to shoot from positions, you know, you're kneeling and sitting and, and squatting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, squatting is one of my favorite positions to practice because practicality where I'm at, there's a lot of tall grass. It's kind of like a grassland setting with a scrub brush. Um, prone is, isn't of much use unless you've mowed, um, out on rural property. So, uh, squatting the gun just settles back on target so quick and it doesn't have much rise because of the extra weight up front. Um, balance wise, the a five, I'm sure it could be a little better with something heavier at the rear, but, uh, for now I'm going to keep it as is. I don't see any reason to change, uh, um, my configuration on this particular build. You know, it's funny you mentioned, it's a little off topic, but it's funny you mentioned the the tall grass and the prone because uh, I have a book, uh, Green Eyes, Black Rifles, Kyle Lamb, and he says, we don't live in a prone world. And it's funny how much you see that sentiment pop up all over the place that in the real world and practical use, either hunting or tactical shooting, like your opportunity to actually shoot from the prone is fairly rare because stuff's in the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, we go to competitions, they give you a prone shot at 400 yards or, or a barrier shot on, off uh, 400 yards is one of the courses of fire I did. I was glad I had my sight radius on my, at the time, 
uh, 20 inch gun. Um, but yeah, in a practical sense, I mean, maybe in an urban setting on some roads, but if you're out in the woods, I can't imagine a scenario where prone is going to be of too much use um, unless you've got a, a hilly area where you can see from hill to hill. Maybe that's a good situation. Uh, but in my flat South Texas landscape, which is reminiscent of Africa, it looks just like a flat Serengeti uh, with tall grass everywhere or rose edges. You can't, you can't do that. You're not going to make a shot uh, on any kind of game animal, especially not if things go south, self-defense. You've got to be able to shoot um, off of barriers or from a more practical position, such as squatting. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I was thinking about as we're having this conversation is how many people obsess over weight. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Weight weight definitely matters when it comes time to carry it. But I, I do notice that people who build these super lightweight rifles, they build them with the idea in mind of, oh, I'm going to be doing like CQB. And, and that's just not the only use you can do with a rifle. Sometimes there's an argument to be made for, oh, let's give a little bit more weight to it, shift it out front a little bit, um, just make it a good, easy to shoot weapon. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if I had to hand a beginner, a beginner rifleman or a budding rifleman, any one of my guns, I'd probably give them the comps 20A2 if they wanted to practice irons or if they wanted to jump straight into optics, the the A5 build that we're talking about. Um, the extra weight keeps them on target. And especially when they are shooting prone just for practice, you know, just to get that comfort behind the gun, uh, it doesn't move. So there's definitely advantages to adding the weight. Disadvantages, yeah, if I'm in a hill country climbing up and down cliffs, maybe I want to go for a more hybrid profile than my H-bar, uh, lighten the gun up a bit. But for taking your long shots, uh, like you mentioned earlier, it's like a laser. You know, your 20-inch guns, just they just they you just hard to miss when you've got an optic on, on these guns and uh, a match load. I mean, as far as hit probability is concerned, uh, when I was messing with some of the uh, – calculators over on Brian Litz's website. Yeah, you can you can tell, you know, once you plug in your 11.5 versus your 20, the hit percentages in theory, mind you, this is a calculator, but a well-respected one, are going to drop. Um, so I do kind of see a little bit of suspicion when I say somebody says, oh, I take my 11.5 out to 600 yards all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, not, know, say, I, I mean, not yes, saying I'm, that can't be done, but... Yeah, absolutely. It can for sure. But you're on a curated range. Your targets are incremental 100, 200, 300, 400 yards. If you had to take a shot on the field and your target is at an unknown distance, how is that 11.5 going to compare? Um, there's velocity loss, which actually affects how um, how well you can range the target. If you have some error on your range, you might hit a little low, you might hit a little high. Uh, whereas if you were shooting a laser beam, it wouldn't matter the range, correct? You'd just be dead on at 100 yards, you're dead on at 1,000 yards. So the flatter we push the the trajectory, the more it can soak up a minimal amount of range error. Mm-hmm. And that's why another advantage of the 20. So so not every target's going to be a full man-sized silhouette at, at 300, 400 yards. I would suspect if you're thinking, hey, I'm you know training for the, the big igloo, you're going to be <laughs> wanting to shoot at camouflage, partially exposed targets at unknown distances because that's what the reality would be. Partially exposed only exposed for a short period of time, uh, shooting at you, you shooting back, you know, it would be chaos. And any amount of uh, hit percentage you have with your 11.5 or your 20 for that matter on a curated range is going to go, it's going to go down so hard, so fast. What, what could you do? Mm-hmm. You know, I've never been in combat, but, but I, I take uh, to heart what, what those who have been tell me, uh, my, uh, a relative of mine, Chris Hernandez, who has a blog, uh, was over in Afghanistan and same thing. He had a DMR, marksman rifle, M14, you know, on his 
perfect conditions, he could hit a target at 800 yards with that 308. Uh, but in the uh, miasma of combat, he, he said he would have been ecstatic to smoke a fool at 200 yards. It was hard to shoot somebody who was shooting back and hiding and partially exposed, too, of mm-hmm. course. They're not going to stand up in the open. Um, so that's, you know, that's the battle of the 20-inch gun. It, it gives you that advantage whether or not you can take advantage in a situation. I don't know. But mm-hmm. uh, in theory, that fighter trajectory should help a, a marksman hit a target uh, with a little bit more accuracy and or hit percentage at unknown distances than a carbine or a very short carbine especially the pistol builds mm-hmm. yeah and so speaking of the flat trajectory of it um you know you and i have both written about this concept but the uh point blank range it's just going to yes. be longer on a 20 inch uh, for that flat trajectory so for those who aren't familiar with this concept uh, brian do you want to explain that one yeah basically um you want to zero your rifle so that the arc of the bullet from zero to whatever X range is um, stays within your target's diameter. So if you're shooting at, uh, let's say you're shooting at, um, you know, human silhouette, okay, Um, you can tolerate your bullet rising, for example, center mass, perhaps five, six inches high, and then it will fall back to the line of sight, and then it will drop. And at that point where it drops six inches low, your, your target diameter being a foot, you, that's the end of your maximum point-blank range. Uh, I've also heard it described as shooting through a tube of a various diameter where the bullet will not hit the top or the bottom, but when it does, or when it does hit the bottom of the tube, that's the end of your point-blank range. Idea being, point, click, hit. You don't have to range estimate a target inside of your maximum point-blank range. And that's been a concept for quite a while. Many hunters have used it, um, but... It's harder to do because you need your velocity, you need a calculator, uh, so a little more effort for some shooters that aren't really going to be bothered, and most shooters will be fine with a 50-yard zero, so, you know, it's just one of those things mm-hmm. that, hey, if I want to the theoretical advantage of it, you can do it. Yeah, and the 50-yard zero, I mean, that's that's just a very common way to do it. It's easy to remember, but everybody who hears a 50-yard zero, oh yeah, it's a 5200, in reality, we're actually talking about a much simplified version of the of this yeah wildly different barrel lengths yeah um chamberings you know powder burn you know whatever powder you put behind your reload i mean so many different uh actual zeros it might be 50 but you're far Man. far zero who knows if yeah. you haven't verified it and 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 that goes to a, a good lesson is that nothing is ever a 5200 it's whatever you actually zeroed at yeah and, and then you need to know what that zero is all right um, so I said I'd talk about some of my experience with it. So I have used my A5 uh, in both competition and in tactical training. Um, so the competition I did uh, most recently with it was NRA's America's Rifle Challenge. Uh, I did that out here at a range in West Virginia. Um, and that went out to everything from CQB distance out to 550 yards. Uh, and we had 30, 30 knot winds that day. So that was kind of a... That was a fun one. Um, Okay. uh, I was shooting 75 grain Frontier, Hornady Frontier on that one. So um, fun match. And the lessons I learned out of that one was that I did not feel like I was behind in any way in the CQB stages compared to the guys who were running their 16-inch guns. Um, And I felt distinctly advantaged at 550 yards. Did you have a lot of uh, stages at 550 where 
shooters did not finish. So there was only one stage at 550, and I'm pretty sure like nobody did great unless they were running one of these crazy variable optics that had like one to eight in it. Um, the bottom line is in that much wind I was having, uh, my 3.5 was having trouble spotting the misses on the gong. So I actually didn't do great gotcha. out there, but out to it, so there was targets at 100, 250, 350, like on the way out, I did great at all of those really quickly. The 500 was just like in that much wind with a with a 223, that was just hard to spot your hits. Um, Absolutely. But I felt way more stable <laughs> than the other guys who I talked to during that stage. And then like I said, back to, back to the CQB stages, I didn't feel like I was necessarily any slower. I actually did better than a lot of guys in my squad who were running shorter shorter rifles. So it didn't, yeah, yeah, it didn't seem to hold me back in any way. Now, did I win? No. And the reason I didn't win was this is my first match of that style. And I did not know my wind calls very well. Like it's a problem with ACOG reticles. It's not really good horizontal reference and you can't just dial for wind or anything. So, okay. Yeah. It's about, that's about knowing your ballistics. That's on me. That's not on the rifle itself. Yeah, I'm sure you had some advantage over the carbines, and you know, just having a, a, a an optic with an accurate BDC, uh, tons of advantage. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to worry so much, especially if you know your fixed range. You know your targets at 550. Well, you know where to hold because your your TAO one B or excuse me, your TAO two B is calibrated for your 77. So yeah, the wind squirrely, but you know that's yeah. that's life with a 223. Yeah, I mean the guy in my squad who smoked everybody, he he shoots there every weekend at PRS matches. And he was running a one to eight with an MRAD reticle and he knew, he knew his holds. So it was just, yeah, that's going to be the, that's going to be the linchpin. All right. So then the other one was the tactical training I've used it in. Um, and I ran two, actually three rifles to this. It was a four day course. Uh, first day, my, my primary rifle, which was my 16 inch recce, uh, took a dump on me. <laughs> it started okay. short stroking. It had gas problems. Uh, I figured out what that problem was. It was poorly lubricated with underpowered ammo. And that one's always struggled with underpowered ammo, especially when it gets cold. Um, gotcha. So then most of the time I was running a 16 inch uh, lightweight pencil profile. My, my minimum capable carbine, as I call it, um, performed great. That one was topped with an Elkan 4X, uh, fixed 4X. And then one day uh, when we were on the the jungle lanes, as we called it, which was running up and down the side of this, this mountain uh, in two and four man groups with, you know, doing fire maneuver. Um, I took, I took along the A5 and it was great. It performed wonderfully when I was actually shooting with it. Um, what I noticed compared to the super lightweight one that I've got was it was, as I was just walking around with it, I was like, Oh, this kind of sucks to carry. <laughs> so yeah, yeah uh, that's a given. But I mean, it did great for it. Um, loved the ACOG vertical. The the horseshoe dot was super super easy to use, um, and the green stood out really well against everything. It was just it was just a very nice shooting system. Um, the actual length definitely made itself known. I'll say that. W- did it make that significant of a difference? No, not really. I wouldn't have felt like I was going to lose a gunfight with that versus yeah. a sixteen inch. Not that I ever I'm going to say I'm qualified to talk about losing or winning a gunfight. Uh, just comparing the two side by side, I didn't necessarily feel like one dramatically outperformed the other. Oh yeah. And, and some of your experiences mirror mine. I, you know, I compete competed with 20 inch guns, primarily Pennsylvania. The only time I competed with a carbine was at the Texas carbine championships in Corpus Christi. Um, 
you know, the 20 inch gun, I, I definitely didn't come in first, um, but I didn't feel inhibited at all. Even with, uh, close range stuff. Um, I did have to, I did have to flub it sometimes. I, at the time I was running an A2 stock initially and I put it over my shoulder, but, uh, I point shot those point blanks and still got a hits, uh, two, two, a hits, you know, two alphas. And really it wasn't that big a deal. I was thinking, man, people really make a big, bigger deal about this on the internet than it actually is. Yeah, all that said, it seems like we have very similar experiences there. It's a very nice shooting rifle. It doesn't seem to hold us back significantly from, you know, what everybody thinks of as the ideal like carbine configuration these days. Um, so would you recommend on your end that people actually try one out? Yeah, if if you have one gun, probably not. If you're only gonna have one, you know, tried and true carbine, that's all you can afford. Yeah, go go with something a little more practical. Okay, but if you've got the carbine cover, or you live in a um, an environment where you can cover long distances and you don't feel like a 308 is necessary, um, then the 20 inch A5 builds are the a very mellow blend of of Stoner's design that's just going to be uh, very practical for those kind of situations where you've got zero to 600 yard shooting, even now to 800 yards with your um, hand loaded ammunition. Uh, just such a, a fun shooting rifle. Very mellow and reliable. The 20 inch guns, they just don't, they don't choke. They're, uh, if it's got the proper gas port and you've got a good magazine, I've, I've never had a trouble, never had any trouble with any of my 20s. They're so, they're so uh, reliable and, and pleasant to shoot. So go for it. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I w- if it should not be your one gun, though I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel outgunned if it was my one gun, but it's a fantastic second or a third. Um, just to cover all of your bases and just make shooting fun again. Hashtag. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, that's, that's four of my five rifles are 20 inch guns. So what does that tell you? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I know I'm going to keep shooting mine until the barrel runs out and then I'll probably replace it with something more precision oriented. And then we'll have a very different conversation about how I run that one. But uh, yeah, for now, it's still my favorite shooting. Second favorite is probably my 18 inch <laughs> for the same reasons. 18 inch rifle gas. Yeah. Yeah, I had had one of those as well. Some wonderful, wonderful rifles turned into the straight jacket. So, would you say that there is any reason to have a fixed rifle stock anymore? That's a harder one. So, expense wise, they're cheaper than A5s. So, I'll give you that. That's about it. I do have some fixed stocks um, that are A2 length, but. You know, it's just a fun gun. Yeah, I could shoot one. I'm a, I'm five six. So I'm not the tallest guy. I don't have monkey arms, uh, but I can handle an A2 stock. But if you put armor on it, all out the window. If I had to grab something for hit the fan, what am I going to do? I'm not going to grab the fixed A2 stock. Absolutely not. I'm going to put my armor on, and then I'm going to grab a carbine with a collapsible stock and rubber on the butt pad so it doesn't slide off the nylon. Or if I had to, the, a, the A5. Uh, it's got to have adjustable stock these days if it's going to be practical uh, quotation marks. Yeah, I agree. I think the only reason to do it these days is cost reasons. Um, two of my rifles these days have fixed rifle stocks on them and they're both Magpul Mose. Uh, one I did intentionally just for a retro look and feel. It's not a practical thing at all. And the other one is more of a precision oriented rifle and I couldn't afford another UBR for it. So I said, yeah. might as well go fixed. Cheek weld matters for some of those scenarios, some of those yeah. uh, builds, you know, but yeah, I'll, I'll sacrifice a bit of the cheek weld for the adjustable stock. If somebody gave me an A5 today and said, give me your A2 stock, I'll trade you. Boom, done. <laughs> All right, Brian, I have one question left. It's the one that I asked everybody and you can take your time to think about it. What is one thing that you wish people would stop doing immediately? 
brand bashing on the internet. Mm. Explain. Too much brand bashing over something that statistically is likely to not happen to you. That life or death experience uh, behind the trigger of a gun is most likely not going to happen to you. Uh, so to trash somebody's choice of a, a budget-minded shooter of a PSA is kind of irksome, especially because PSA is fairly reliable. It's not the perfect platform, but to tout your Daniel defense is the best thing ever or your uh, Colt or your Hodge, uh, you know, it is a superior rifle to the PSA, but in all likelihood, you're going to use it for a hobby. Um, you're probably not going to be in a self-defense situation your entire life. So go easy on the brand bashing and let the new guys get the PSA and and be supportive. You know, you can't, uh, you're not going to make a gun owner by, by pricing these things out of the reach of most normal people. You want them to get a PSA as a stepping stone or a, or a budget-minded gun as a stepping stone to perhaps one day they'll buy a Hodge. One day they'll get so into the hobby, they start competing and taking it more seriously. You can't do that if you scare them away saying, you've got to get a Colt because most of my friends wouldn't have bought a Colt. It's too expensive. Most of them wouldn't buy a Daniel Defense. They don't take it seriously enough because it's something new to them. I got them to go with a PSA and their shooters today. They'll, they'll, uh, some of them went on to bigger, better uh, platforms. So... Don't don't do the brand bashing. We can probably hold off on that. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, no one will ever accuse me of being someone who advocates for budget builds only. I fully agree they have their place, especially for getting somebody interested for the first time. Um, but and you know what I think the problem is is that we have that? we have a culture in a lot. I call it message board culture, where there are people who are gatekeepers and feel like you can't be part of the club unless you've shown the right level of commitment. And to, for a lot of them who don't practice enough, they don't train enough, it's going to be how much money you spent. That's that's what it takes to get in the club. And it's not about if you just want to get better as a shooter. Yeah, you don't take this seriously enough if you don't have uh, high-end gun X. Right. And I, I see that all over the place. Uh, it's sad. It's it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, And I don't like that kind of culture. And I think it's where you're saying that's, that's where that comes from, right? It's brand bashing. Well, of course. You know, you got your PSA, and I've got my my KAC. So you're you're not worthy. Yeah, you're a poor. I mean, I have I have two PSAs just sitting around in basic builds, and they're fun to shoot. I have them to introduce new shooters who go with me to shoot. But yeah, I like some of the finer things too. I mean, who who do you know aside from shooters on forums buys an ACOG? I don't know any friends, family, relatives except one, Chris, who has an ACOG. That's an expensive purchase. Mm -hmm. And that's an enthusiast level purchase that by itself, or maybe you're a doctor and it's just a drop in the bucket. That could be you. But for most people, no, it's not. No, but they look at me like I'm crazy that I spent $900 on an optic. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. And, uh, and I, I feel that pain too. When, when, if I unload all my stuff at the range and then people see all the optics, because I mentioned I have an LCAN earlier and then the ACOG and I, I, I don't regret, I regret nothing, <laughs> but yeah, no, if by the other end of that, it's like, you know what? Like, yeah, I probably could have put that money elsewhere. Yeah. I could have bought some Bitcoin five years ago, but I was spending <laughs> it on guns. So yeah. I don't have as many guns now because of that choice. However, uh, I, yeah, I regret nothing. I'm going to buy good equipment when I want to. And other times I'll have some guns that are not life or death, uh, machines, you know, Daniel Defense, I'll build my rifles as I see fit and enjoy the finer things when I want. Yeah. All right, Brian, um, where can people find you? 
All right, I'm at www.thenewrifleman.com. Minimal YouTube footprint. I'm trying to improve that. Um, But for the most part, it's my blog. And you can see me as well as my uh, guest writers, uh, Richard and Damien, uh, producing content there. All right, Brian. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on. Hey, that was awesome. Thanks. Uh, Thanks as much, Matt. Appreciate it. All right, that is gonna do it for me. I don't have any key takeaways or anything like that on this episode because this wasn't my typical kind of interview. Um, So what did you think? Did you like this kind of casual discussion with another blogger about a specific topic? Come on by the website, everydaymarksman.co to the episode for, for number 31 and let me know what you thought of this format. Did you like it? Did you not like it? Do you want some more of it? Um, And while you're there, don't forget to hit that big green subscribe button and get on the email list. That way you get notified not only of new episodes, but also articles that come out and any news going on within our awesome community. And don't forget that there is a new Marksman Challenge up this month, as always. And this one is all about your survival skill set in the form of knot tying. Why is knot tying on there? Because knots are awesome. And you should read the article about what that one going up. All right, that is going to be it for me this week. Take care. I will see you next week.